Hey guys, welcome to the third episode of the SkullNight.net podcast, which is now dubbed the Skullcast. With me today, I have... Azil And Griffith. Awesome. Thanks guys for coming back. Uh, last episode, uh, you may have remembered, it was kind of rushed. I was kind of heading out the door the entire podcast. I was on the way to New York City, finishing packing my bags, and really didn't have a, time, a lot of time to go over all the things we wanted to. So this time, we're just kind of going to let it flow. And not as much stuff on the chart, but that doesn't mean we're not going to have exciting conversation, right, guys? We have stuff to talk about still, for sure. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't really have anybody to introduce this time. Uh, what was the biggest thing you think uh, we missed from last week? What was one thing that you guys thought we could have spent more time on that we didn't? Well, I think we could have spent a lot more time, you know, talking about uh, the past episodes and uh, Alpha and what's, you know, what we've got in store for the future. Definitely. We should probably spend a little more time on 327. We got really sidetracked with the hair thing, and there's a lot more to talk about that. And also, uh, I think it was Amira's comments for that episode of Young Animal or the issue of Young Animal saying that the Sea God section is now done, so... Moving yeah. forward, we're going to have you know kind of a different setting, different pace for where the ser- where the series is going. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to mostly focus on was, you know, I- I've seen some comments, not very many, but I think some people might be a little lost in the context for what we just finished in the series in this whole island section of this chapter uh, when they arrived on the island. Uh, that, you know, they were kind of on the way to Skellig and they got sidetracked with this island. Well, what was the point of all that? And I think we all pretty have, have pretty strong opinions about what the direction was, but Azil and Griff just wanted to open it up to see what you guys thought about that. What do you think the significance of this whole section of the series was? Well, you know, I talked a bit uh, last time about, you know, Farnese and uh, her development. Uh, beyond that, you know, there's also uh, a clear homage to me to uh, Lovecraft, you know, in this you know section of the story. But, you know, one more thing is Guts, basically, when the worlds, you know, will merge, Merged, sorry. Uh, he got, you know, his, you know, wounds were healed, and uh, well, this was also the occasion to get him bad in uh, a bad shape, you know. So I guess, you know, that played a, uh, to me. It's, it's clear it played a part. So yeah, and aside from that, uh, it showed what the world you now is like. Like you know, it's not just apostles and unicorns or whatever. They are really scary, very powerful and dangerous, you know, beings in the world now. Right, yeah. I, I think, sorry, Griff, I don't inter- I talked on top of you. You were going to say something. Oh, uh, yeah. <clears throat> I was just going to follow up on that. I think uh, it also sort of establishes guts, like, not just, you know, physically getting in bad shape again, but just sort of just going further down the path with the armor, becoming more sort of, uh, like, dependent on it again. Like, they're becoming more in line with each other. I'm, I don't know, I guess more symbiotic. Like, just going further down that path where you, you know, really... Like, you know, now it's almost like it's like a two-way street almost, like we talked about with him in the armor, the way he was able to sort of call on it and have more control over it. I don't know if that's a good thing for him, that, you know, he has more control over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could actually be a bad thing, you know, that he's becoming, you know, it's like there's less separation between where he where he ends and it begins. And uh, I also think just from, besides the things uh, as said, I think just like from a pacing standpoint, it's good to have, like, show their, you know, something, uh, uh, you know, a, ju- a journey-like chapter, you know, where it shows them going on, like, 
this adventure at sea. So it's not just like, well, we got on the boat, and then you know, the next time we see them, here we are. You know, we're we're at right. we're at Elven. Yeah, you know? yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, it's like you know, it's, people get really impatient because they don't look at the episodes. Like you know, they look at every the latest episode is like the last episode instead of like part of a continuum. But yeah, it would be really awkward, you know, reading it if they just you know jumped to the island. So it's like it's good to just have you know. It's funny to say because people get so impatient, but it's like, yeah, just for a pacing, like you gotta, you don't want to rush. Mm-hmm. So I think that's yeah. another, you know, sort of just a writing purpose, like a literary purpose for, you know, this whole thing. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, beyond that, there's also the fact, uh, you know, now almost every fight, you know, Gus has to use Yama. Like, yep. you know, it, it has a progression in terms of the difficulty and the strength, the number of enemies he's fighting every time. And like we saw with the sea slugs, basically, there's a point where he, even, you know, with his friend, strength and skill and everything in the Dragon Slayer, he, he just can't do it. It's impossible, you know, firing the cannon twice and, you know, it's still not enough. So right. here he has to rely on the armor more and more and more. And I think it's going to to keep, you know, being the case, to keep, you know, progressing. And uh, I mean, it's logical to, right. to fight the good hand. He, he wouldn't be able to do it, you know, just by himself. I mean, it's been made clear very early on in the series, and uh, he's going to have to find a way to do it. So, yeah, I think it's it's also a progression in, in that direction. The significance I saw here was, I, I agree, the, the significance I saw was looking at this island as an example of what's happening all around the world. When Fantasia first started, yeah, um, the big, what I really wanted to know was, the context of each of those monsters that appeared in those areas of the world, you know, that when, when Fantasia first started, you got little glimpses of what was happening around the world. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to know each little story that was happening locally. Like, what's the history behind those little imps in the cave? Is there something locally tied to that, or, or is it just the astral world? And in here, what we got was a perfect storybook example of what's happened in the world. You had this small fishing village that had this ancient legend attached to it. But probably what happened is that, you know, as soon as the worlds merged, that local legend became reality. And suddenly you're in this, this, this perfect example of what's happening as a microcosm across the world. And I, I, I didn't really pick up on that probably until halfway through this island arc, but, which is kind of sad because it's kind of obvious now. Well, it, it, go ahead, Ezio. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if it's really like a legend which became reality, you know. When the... I mean, Isma was a Mero, you know, uh-huh. living on the island. So, I don't know. It's not the way I interpreted it. I think. Do you think the, the sea god was always sleeping under there? Yeah, or even, even I, in the I physical mean, world. I mean, it really existed, you know. It was there was really a fight against the Meros a long, long time ago. Like mm-hmm. probably, but you know, back when uh, Gazerik was still ruling the, you know, his own empire. And I think uh, when the wars were not merged, the sea god was too weak to really get out and with the merging it mm-hmm. basically became strong enough to basically you know become alive again or free himself from the his you know prison sure i mean that that's not necessarily different from what i'm saying i guess i'm yeah i'm just, I yeah, it just, it uh, yeah I, i'm just nitpicking it's a point of detail but i i've always pushed more for that interpretation sure. you know as opposed to oh well, it was a legend which well became uh, true. But by local legend all, all i really meant was no one alive has any recollection of it like a real recollection of it yeah okay yeah sure well like, then i agree like the, the villagers didn't necessarily totally believe in the sea god they didn't know it was really sleeping underneath the island it was just something yeah. that was passed on from generation sure. to generation 
This actually uh, ties into something I wanted to bring up that was I thought was kind of interesting about the Sea God and all this, and uh, is the fact that like these things aren't new. Like it isn't like the world has changed and it's like it's created all this new stuff. It's that like the Sea God isn't you know like a new creation. He's like a, a great old one basically. Like yeah. you know. And it's sort of, like, it makes you think about, like, what the end game here is, like, with the God Ham. What, you know, what they're doing, like, sort of, you know, whether it's in, you know, this is just, like, a side effect or not, you know, sort of empowering these old, you know, creatures. And, you yeah. know, sort of bringing this old world back. It's a very good question, actually. Is it a side effect of, you know, them, you know, furthering their plans? Or is it what they is it really the plan? wanted yeah. to do? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think it's a side effect, indeed. I, I, think... I also think it's uh, yeah. merely incidental to what's what they actually want to do. That's just, yeah. I mean, it's just it's the hunch I have. Yeah, I, I think this is extremely speculative territory, but I don't care. We're just we're just talking. This is not a doctrine I'm <laughs> writing right now. We're just talking bullshit. But if you look back at Griffith's motivations way back in the day, one of the first things he told Guts was that. He was basically he's expressing frustration at the social order in the world right now, and that power is handed down from the top. Like only nobles have, you know, control of their own destiny, and even they don't have control of their own destiny. And what I always saw was a part of what Griffith's plan was was to basically upset that that social order, was to well, give power not not back to the people necessarily, but it didn't necessarily like the top down style of to- ruling. To himself, you know. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. to himself. But I, I kind of <laughs> think about what 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 did what did the what did the Falcons actually think that Griffith was going, was going to achieve when he said he wants his own kingdom? What kind of kingdom would he rule? Would he really basically just be replacing the king of Midland? And then this is this is all leading to what I was about to say is what has happened in the world right now is that he has upset the social order. The the a class of nobles has no more meaning anymore, and the, the entire governing structure of the world has completely been altered, and it's no longer. Doesn't it doesn't matter if your family gave you power or not? You're not in power anymore. You know? Yeah, but yeah, uh, you oh. touched on an interesting point there. I'm, this is sort of a diversion. I'm sorry, but do you think Griffith actually told like anyone besides Guts about his plans? Like, I don't recall. Like, even did you know Casca even realize? I mean, I think she had an idea, yeah, but like, well, she, I don't know that Judo and everyone did. She she knew that you know uh, Griffith wanted to take Charlotte for himself. And, oh, and uh, you know what Judo did too. I was about yeah. to say. I was actually about to pull the exact text. It's in volume eight. Yeah, it's in, yeah, it's when they're leaving uh, Wyndham. Right. Judo says yeah. something along the lines of, "What Griffith plans is much more." I can't remember what he what he'd said exactly. But I'm wondering if they all got the same speech Guts did, or if uh, no, you know, like that was Judo inferring, like, like because he's I think like, it's, I think it's that because Griffith yeah. specifically says that he's never talked to anyone like this before. But of course, yeah, that yeah. was earlier in their relationship. But somehow, yeah. I doubt he shared that with everybody else. Yeah, I, I think they just knew because you know they were you know privy to some information. But I don't think it was them. Yeah, yeah. And again, I I know what I just said was kind of going off the deep end and not necessarily grounded in reality. That's just how I think, and I'm. Willing to be slapped down if either of you guys want to say, well, "Oh, Walter, I don't think so." Well, the thing is, you know, I I don't think you know the Godenda. That you know what you're saying, it's it's very uh, idealistic to me. I mean, the Godenda is going to rule. It's going to be you know probably evil. So, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, it's not nobles anymore, but it's not any better actually. I mean, it's still oh, the Godenda. Saying- they are still deciding who gets to do what and who gets to die and such. So, yeah, sure. I'm not saying. Yeah, it's proven. It's I'm actually saying. kind of petty. Like when you think about it that way, because it's sort of like they're just upsetting the order to put in their own order. Yeah, <laughs> like, pretty much. That's yeah. it. 
And and actually, yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, what happened with Fantasia, I think mostly it was just, you know, Femto bringing in his buddies, you know. I mean, I think that was the main goal, and uh, yeah. everything else was just, you know, aside. Well, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, what we were talking about, like, I, I kind of feel like, I kind of feel both ways. I feel like it's part of the plan, but, you know, they've got goals beyond that. Like, I think, you know, it isn't just sort of an accident, like, the way they've changed the world, like, to do something else. Like, yeah, I agree, yeah. Probably not, yeah, I wouldn't say just I, an accident. I feel like, they, yeah, I feel like they want it this way, like, otherwise, like, other than whatever, you know, end game they've got going, it's like, this is, like, the kind of world they want. Yeah. You know, I actually wonder about that because I've always saw it, you know, seen it, I mean, uh, as a gold hand was, you know, like, it's the magic of humans, you know, and it opposes itself to the magic of, you know, elementals and, you know, other creatures. Mm-hmm. Quite so, you know, now that's very, very speculative, but no, I always saw it, I always <laughs> saw it that way, you know, like apostles, you know, it's magic in a way, but it's not the same kind of magic and it's purely human, you know. Yeah. So to me, so gold hands, they are, you know, I don't know, humans opposing everything else in the world, trying to, you know, impress their own power over everything else in the world mm-hmm. to dominate the world. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, okay, I, I, I got a, I got a question then. Do you guys think that? Sorry, sorry, you, Walter. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Do you guys think that Fantasia as it is now is going to be basically how things stand for a while going forward and whatever the God Hand do, like the world's going to kind of like stay this way? Or do you think that they're going to completely change this world? Like they're going to make it in their own image, like all this stuff with, you know, dragons and everything going on. If they're going to completely take this magic world and twist it into their own kind of magic world where it's going to become, you know, for, you know, just an example, like maybe a much darker world, you know. Before we advance, do you think, are you basically saying the chaos the world's currently in is it something that's going to precede like a darker order is that what you're asking yeah where they're just gonna where they're gonna like take like if this is just this sort of chaotic magical world where magic is just overflowing over everything but you know not necessarily with any affiliation are they gonna like harness it and control it and focus it into something much darker um, I will tell you, go, Azil, you probably have an answer already. I'm, I'm pulling my answer right now. Yeah, I, I, I would say that um, the, the world is going to stay like that for a while, but they are going to be changing it slowly in their image, and I don't think they can change the whole world, you know, but uh, I think they are going to be yeah, influencing it, whole regions of it, and uh, yeah, that's what I think it's going to be. But yeah, I think they are going to very, you know, deliberately modify it, change it to achieve their mysterious goals? I, my answer is much more idealistic. <laughs> Here's the thing. I, I agree that God Hand are evil and that, yes, probably if they're in control of this, that it's going to be an evil place, yes. But behind all that, what this world has been set up to be since way back in the day, this new creation, a, a perfect world, is the way the Behirid Apostle called it. And you, you hear that phrase again, if you look at volume 33, the, uh, I can't remember his name right now, I'm sorry, the cushion that opposes Silat whenever the uh, people from Midland are escaping, or Wyndham are escaping. Jarif? Jarif, thank you. He's talking to Silat about, he's asking him to join his side, Griffith's side, basically. And he phrases it, a new world, one no one has ever seen. I think he actually calls it a perfect world as well earlier. But you see that phrase a couple different times. And I always wondered what they're getting at is necessarily about what the nature of this new world is. Uh, is it by perfect, do they mean unified? 
in that the world was once one and then was split into these different sections or segmented and now it's becoming one again? Or is it actually, you know, something more than that? I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's not going to change from what it is. I think they wouldn't introduce this concept and, and then kind of change it from that. So, wow. yeah. You know, I I don't really know about that because um, the Beherit Apostle, you know, he has mm-hmm. more perfect word, but we know the God Hand never gives, you know, people uh, what they ask for in some in a candid way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So uh, I think I don't think it's going to really be a perfect word, and I don't think Fantasia is a perfect word anyway. People are they are already miserable from what little we've seen of it. But what does what does perfect mean though? I mean. That's what, yeah, I was, that's what I was saying. Perfect it's hard light. to interpret it. But, you know, one thing, though, I'll say is I, I believe even though so far the God Hand is, you know, achieving its goals, uh, I believe all these magic creatures and what the changes uh, the world has seen, it will also be their undoing in a way. I mean, it will participate uh, in their fall. Sure. So, yeah. Somehow. It has to. I mean, the, the fact that they're closer to... Uh, well, I think Guts says it more poetically: is that Griffith's now in in range of his sword or something like yeah. that? Yeah, he's on the, like he's on the same ground, right, you know, that exactly. he is. Like before, they were just completely, you know, beyond his reach, and now they're not. So yeah, yeah. so yeah, it's a it's a double-edged sword. I wanted to go back to what you said earlier about the the nature of the God Hand and what they actually the the power of the God Hand is based on. Is that something I've always been very fascinated about? And if you look back in Volume Twelve, you know, uh, voids. You know, the best character in the series has an enigmatic speech <laughs> about why Griffith should do should make the sacrifice. His Void gives him his pitch after they do the the, the look into Griffith's soul uh, and look at his uh, who who he really is. You know, the Griffith uh, that he says uh, Void says uh, it's really jargony, but basically, if it be reason that destiny transcends human intellect and make playthings of children. It is cause and effect or causality that a child bear his evil and confront destiny. I, I don't think yeah. that's the perfect translation of it, but no, but it, it gets a part where it matters, right? Exactly, it's which is a fact. Humans, yeah. humans taking advantage of this power, this evil, to basically make their destiny or manifest destiny. Yeah, so. pretty much. They are rebelling against the world and imposing their right. own power. But you know, it, it could be we could make a parallel with science mm-hmm. in our world. You know, the way. Humans have used, you know, science to, you know, remake the world in uh, their image yeah. and take over the nature or whatever. So, yeah, that's a great point, man. Yeah, absolutely. It's like basically instilling your will on something, even though it's resistant to change. Yeah. Well, anyway, going back to, uh, you know, uh, three hundred and twenty-seven. Yeah. I wanted to say that uh, what we saw in that episode, and I don't think it was mentioned, uh, it's that guts remained conscious uh, after you know Shiruke was taken away from him and uh, the armor deactivated itself yeah so i want to say that even though he actually managed to control it a little bit he didn't succumb to it after that so i don't know i think it's it's significant to the story and uh, it, it goes to show that as time goes by he's getting more and more power over it and uh, actually it's pretty it's done very subtly to me well, yeah, it was done so subtly. It was done off off camera or off picture, basically. Yeah, you know, it happens between the episode. And actually, it was the first thing that struck me upon watching the episode, or reading the episode, was, oh, so they didn't have a conflict. Because my first thought when Shiark uh, left was that the beast was going to still be in control, and that he was going to guts is going to eventually you know knock out some marrows and it's in the path back to the ship or something like that. You know, 
but obviously that was not a conflict. So <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting because yeah, I, I it was kind of how I expected. I thought he was just going to be like, yeah, pretty much exactly as it was that he was going to be sort of in this state of you know I don't know like <laughs> like a refractory period you know of uh you know after the you know the armor and the beast had left him you know because he had no nothing else to do. But I guess yeah, I didn't think of it in terms of him having more control. Just that you know. A lot of the times when the confrontation is over, or like when he's in such bad shape, mm-hmm. like say when uh, Ganeshka, you know, hit him with lightning, you know, it right. like it it completely like retarded the armor. So <laughs> like it didn't. Work. Hey, that's a technical term. I know, man. I know, I know, I know. It's, I shouldn't have laughed. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. So I mean, I just sort of thought of it that way, and so I wasn't really. So I didn't expect him to sort of be like the beast in there. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't think he was going to be. Uh, yeah, I didn't think he was going to be like that. Yeah. yeah. Going into it. Sure. Um anyway, uh you know, going back to his wounds, you know, the the, the fact he's now his wounds, you know, what he endured from the sea god is actually pretty strange. I mean, he was damaged by the pressure. Please talk so, about this. Yes, tell me yeah. an authoritative answer on this because I've heard so many different things. I don't know what to think. Tell me What? Well, well, I'm pretty sure he was damaged by the pressure, you know. I mean, pressure, you know, sound waves or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, it's basically so. It's not a, you know, standard kind of damage. And I really wonder how it will affect him, his senses, you know, among other things. But yeah, it's pretty significant. I think, uh, you know, it reminds me actually of when uh, he went back to Godo in uh, volume, uh, you know, 17 with the Dragon Slayer, and it was all, you know. Basically, very damaged, mm-hmm. and I think by the time he'll arrive in Elfham, he'll be just like that, you know. And uh, I wonder, maybe the King of the Flower Storm will cure him or something. But yeah, I think it's it's pretty serious, and uh, I wonder how the damage his senses received, how it's coupled with what the armor does, because the armor also damages senses. Yeah. So yeah. it's a yeah, it's very yeah. very special to me. One thing in 327 I wanted to discuss was directly related to this, and that is there's a page, I don't have it in front of me right now, I probably could, but uh, he's inside the Sea God, and he's kind of using all of his senses to detect what's around him. And now yeah. I can't tell if what's being said is that he can't detect things, or that he can. Because he touches something, uh, he, he tastes something, and he hears something, but I can't tell if he's noticing that he's, his senses are lessened, or that he's like, wow, it sure does smell like crap in here, or something like that. I have no idea, you know? And we won't know until we have a full translation. But yeah, my first thoughts were that he's losing senses even further because of his interaction with the armor and the usage of the armor. So, well, I think he can actually, you know, he has some of his senses left, but he, you know, yeah, they're damaged. And, he might be uh, dulled or something like that. You know? Yeah, yeah, they're damaged, and he basically he has no strength left. That's the main thing. So he, he can't, he can't go on. Right. My my interpretation was that like as everyone was talking about like oh man look at you know guts he can't see anything in there and all that I was thinking well I think he's just in the dark for one thing <laughs> it's like his yeah. senses aren't going to do him much good wanted, where he is yeah like, without that, without Shirke to show him the way not just that but the bioluminescence of the sea god you can see it quite clearly uh, in the preceding episodes on the surface. And I wondered if the, some of that transferred on the inside of the sea god ah. as well. But ultimately, the bioluminescence dies out, and yeah. I wonder how much was left in the final in three twenty seven, right before or three twenty six when he made his final slash. It's probably pitch black in there. So yeah, yeah, that's a very good point actually. The inside of the sea god was also bioluminescent, and right. when he died, I guess he just you know went off. Oh, there's also the fact he's basically in a blood vessel or something. So you know, yeah. uh, 
I don't think that part would be affected by the bioluminescence of the sea god. Right. I, uh, I had something else to say. You were talking about the damage, you know, that's been done to guts. You know, first, the, yeah. you know, the, like the the pre the air pressure, and I I was thinking, you know, you brought it up to the armor. You know, it's like, is it worse than the than the spikes going into his body, <laughs> like the the air pressure? But you know, when he gets to, you know, the, when they eventually get to Alfhelm, and if he's going to be cured, you know, again, sort of, you know, given another, you know, like. I don't know, whatever they did at a Flora's to, you know, sort of get fully healed, get all his scars gone. Or if it's going to be, a, if part of the point of this wasn't that, you know, maybe he's a little too far gone now and a little too connected with the armor. It's either going to be a thing where, you know, they're going to warn him, you know, sort of like uh, Scully already did that, you know, you need to either stop using this or it's, it might be, you might be on the, uh, just over the line on too late. Mm. Like. You know that yeah. we can't help you. Like maybe you know if you had, if only you'd gotten here last week. You know, <laughs> sort of a thing. So I don't I don't know where they're gonna go with that. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's gonna be. Yeah, go on. Uh, no, I was going to say yeah. I was basically agreeing with you and saying uh, yeah, it, it's truly a question which is up in the air and uh, it could go both way. I mean, it could both ways. There are many things actually we could you know say about it. Please. Uh, like, what's going to happen to each character in Gaspen? Of course, there's Shiruke, Isidro, you know, uh, Roderick. Is he going to go back or stay with Farnese? I think he's going to stay personally. Who? There's... Sorry, I was writing something. Uh, Roderick. Oh, okay. You know. hmm. uh, there's also Magnifico. I actually think, you know, I have this little fantasy of Magnifico setting, a, uh, setting up a shop uh, down in Elfham and, you know, just you know, <laughs> staying, staying there and basically being harassed, you know, bullied by elves. Mm-hmm. Maybe even meeting some <laughs> girl or something. I don't know. It's just, you know, some fantasy I have. Uh... But, are you speaking post Skellig, like after they've gotten there and leave, or are you, are you uh, talking far distant? Or in- well, I, I mean, I'm talking both when they arrive and afterwards. I think Magnifico is eventually going to remain in, you know, Skellig, or I don't know. I think he's going to change his life. Here's on on that. Here's what I say. Um, a, a lot of times we try to interpret what we can or predict what we can about these characters in the future, and I think a lot of it's going to change in Elf film. I think there's going to be even more characters introduced in Elfhelm yeah. that are oh, going to oh. completely change the character relationship dynamics that we currently have. And that's why it's really hard for us to see into the future, particularly these sub-characters that have been introduced, like Magnifico and Roderick. Well, Roderick's sort of maintaining his place next to Farnese's side, and though I imagine yeah. that might keep on being the case. Serpico, for example, though. Serpico, yeah. I'm, what? I think you yeah. said it first, Azil, and I yeah, love the, I love the idea. The I was keeping him for last, you know. He's the one I really wanted to talk about. I won't, I mean, I won't, uh, I won't spoil it. Go ahead. Well, then before we get there, can I uh, jump in yeah, with something? Sure. Yeah, well, because we were discussing Elfhelm. We discussed it in the first episode, and we had, and there was a sort of an assumption we were all working under, because we were talking about, you know, cutting back, you know, to the, when we're going to see the world again, like, you know, Griffith's side of the story. Uh-huh. And we had the discussion where we talked about, uh, you know, if we might see it, you know, when Guts sees it for the first time when they go there. And there's a there's a there's an assumption there that you know there's not going to be any interaction between them until Guts goes back. Now, so my question is, do you guys think that Elfham is going to be sort of an offshoot? Like all they're going to you know be there by themselves until they need to go, and then they're going to go back to sort of like okay, time to go back to the the rest of the story with Griffith, and they're all going to you know that's where the confrontation is going to be. Or do you think, sort of like what happened at Flora's, do you think there will be some sort of an attack on Elfham by Griffith? the rest of the god hand now that they're all in the world now that they're uh, you know presumably all powerful or more powerful anyway well 
Personally, I've always been against the idea that Apple Source would attack uh, Altham because, I don't know, it didn't seem realistic to me. However, with the gold hand, yeah, I guess it yeah, it could happen. So I think it, it could very well happen that while they are in Altham, uh, they'll have to undergo some kind of trial or battle or something, like the island could be attacked. or And it could be either by some unrelated monsters to the yeah. gold hand, I mean, or it could be by the actual bad guys. So I don't know, I think uh, it, it could... It could be, you know, both cases, you know, make sense. But I, I, I tend to think it will be more like a safe uh, haven, you know. Same here. Yeah. I, I tend to think of Elfham as probably the safest place in the world in this kind yeah. of world because yeah. they, they, because it's probably several defenses. They, they, we already know they have defenses around the island. And they, they're, they live in the astral world themselves or on a, the, the, the verge of it. So... They're already used to dealing with magical creatures. I mean, it's a. I mean, yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not trying to undervalue Shirk's powers, but it's an island full of Shirks. I mean, they're, they're fine. <laughs> well, there's one thing though. Is okay. uh, when she said uh, Alfam was, you know, uh, hidden away and you know, mm -hmm. basically warded off uh, yeah. against you know humans and such. Uh, with the merging of the wars, I think oh, yeah, it might yeah. not be as protected as, as it used to be. You know, but right. uh, was well, just speculation. But one thing it could do is. Basically, humans can now get there more easily than they could before, but right. until we until we see it, we we won't know. So I've yeah. got a follow up question: Why do you think they're going to leave Alpha? Like, what do you think the reason is going to be? Like, if you know, oh. if it's it's like perfect sort of safe haven, you know, they're going to have to, you know, why are they going to depart? Yeah, that's a big question. I, actually, I think uh, the Golden Hand will really threaten the world. Like when they get there, some you know people. Who are knowledgeable as a, about the world, like it could be the king of the first stone, will tell them that basically, uh, yeah, you know, the shit is about to hit the fan, and something <laughs> needs to be done, and basically they will be forced to do it. I think Guts will be forced to, yeah, to act. I so think, think it's going to be pretty noble. Like he's going to Guts is going to get a yeah. higher mission, basically. Yeah, yeah on, I think Walter, so. Sorry, I was just going to say my answer to that is it kind of answers both sides of that question, and I think. The answer has to come not just not just from the outside world, but I think Guts has to reconcile his conflict before he sets out again as well. Yeah, indeed. I mean, yeah, him and Cat. Whatever happens with Casca, I think is going to determine a lot of his motivation. That, well. that could be the motivation. Like she, yeah. maybe yeah. it'll come from her. <laughs> I speculated so before actually. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Guts might say. Guts. Let me say one small thing first. And I, what, yeah, sure, what if sure. what if Guts might say, you know, Elfhelm's great. I have Casca. I'm ready to put my sword down, and, and Casca's like, "Fuck no!" <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. get your ass back out there. I'm going yeah. too. You know, I'm, or like, I'm, I'm going. You know, are you going to come with me? She might right. say. I would love to see that kind of dynamic where Guts is reluctant to head back out. I, I can't actually, honestly, realistically say that or see that now that I voice it. I actually, I'm I don't know. No, you know what? I actually think there's something to that because I mean, look at what he's going through. I mean, he was ready to die. He yeah. was coming to terms with his death, like in the in the last episode. So it's like yeah. you know he's gonna he might not be able to move, you know, for yeah. most of the time when they get there. Yeah, and so, again, I mean, that's like, understandable. Uh, again, it, it's I have a, a personal hard time talking about events beyond Elfhelm because hell, we don't even know what's going to happen in Elfhelm, yeah. and it could be yeah. such a departure from what we expect. Like it's just crazy. It's like it's like being in volume nineteen. 
and trying to predict what's happening in volume 30. It's like there's no way you could possibly. Yeah. 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 I, just, I, I, I mean, I have a certain idea, though, that like, I mean, we we assume, you know, Cask is going to get her mind back. And probably to do that, Guts is going to have to go on some sort of trial and it's going to involve, you know, fighting a big monster. <laughs> I mean, that's just sort of how things work. Well, you know, I don't know. I, see I don't know about that. More psychological, you know, like he could go into her mind and try to reassure her something more. I don't know. Yeah, I, I would, a big monster. I you know what? It. That's interesting. How come Shirke? How come they don't send her into? Yeah, I, I, I actually thought about it. I actually yeah. thought about it, and I, and I same think, way with uh, guts. I I don't think guts would like that. You know. Well, yeah. I mean, I would love to see those two those two knots or two ends tied together. The astral projection thing that they've been talking about so much in the past several volumes tied into resolving Casca's state, maybe. Uh, the king will allow them to do something like that or have some kind of power that enables to, to do a much more physical or mental interaction with Casca's state. I don't yeah, want it to just be like she drinks the potion and she's cured. I would love it to be <laughs> yeah. much more interactive. And, yeah, not, you know, yeah, we already know it's not going to be just, know. you know, press a button and it's done. I, I, I hope it's a more emotional thing. and I, I'm sure it will be. So. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I just I always have that suspicion. It's gonna be like, well, you know, I could dive into her mind right now and probably help her. Except there's this monster in a cave on the other <laughs> side, and you, and it's he's interfering with my mind powers. You're gonna have to take care of it, guys. Like, then, okay. You're also gonna need need to bring back ten bat wings in order <laughs> yeah. to cock the potion. You know. Oh my god. But there's only nine in this area. You're gonna have to wait for them to respawn, and you know. <laughs> I hope it's not like that. <laughs> I don't think it will. Be. No, it's not going to be like that. But yeah, I get very excited talking about Elfham, and particularly yeah. since it's so close, we're so close to mm. it being the case. You know, you know, to come back to guts. Sure. And, uh, I think uh, it will be determinant that guts basically makes his peace with the beast of darkness, and uh, I think he will uh, harness his rage. At some point, mm. and make it so that the beast understands that uh, his friends are not a hindrance in his quest for revenge, but rather a help. Yeah. Uh, to 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 get him to reach it. So I think uh, it will happen in you know Hellfam, or it might ha ha happen in Hellfam if uh, Cascas cured, and for some reason they decide to to go back after Femto and the God Hand. This is a much much bigger discussion, and we'll probably get into it when we talk about Volume Seventeen a little bit, but. I, I, it's actually part of something I wanted to address, and that is mm. the the force that drives guts on. Uh, this is too big of a conversation to have. <laughs> Basically, I wanted to talk about karmic fire, which is what Flora references in Volume Twenty Four. Guts and Godo also touch on it in Volume Seventeen, and it's basically yeah. the the destructive angry angry force that Guts holds inside, inside of him that it basically has shaped the beast into what it is. And I wonder if it's malleable, like the way you say, like if he could somehow, if the beast or not, again, the beast is not a separate character, but if Guts could reconcile that within himself, I wonder if it, the beast would be amenable to, or if it is a pure, purely destructive force based on how it was born to begin with. It's a violent well, thing. Well, there's, you know? a, there's a, a simple thing, though. It's that... Okay. Uh, when Casca's cured, she won't be a burden anymore. Like, for now, Guts is protecting her because she can't do anything by herself, and he's journeying away from Griffiths mm -hmm. to cure her. Now, if she's back to normal and uh, they go on a quest, you know, I mean, they get back to Midland and they are basically going to, to fight Griffiths, the Beast has no reason anymore to hate her. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, they would be completely almost on the same page, but it sounds like... Uh... 
what you guys are talking about almost is like guts reaching, you know, in Elfhelm. And I guess you know, I said it or I voiced it earlier in my own words when as was talking about it as like getting a higher purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he's yeah. gonna like he's gonna come through some sort of like he's gonna have some kind of enlightenment. I guess is what you know we're hinting at here. Uh, yeah, you know, that I, sort of brings everything together. I don't think he'll ditch the revenge aspect, but I think there'll be more to it than that. Like yeah, yeah. it will be revenge, but also something else. It's yeah, it's if if anyone was about to jump in, go ahead. I was about to transition, but this relates. Does anybody have something else to say? Well, I'm not going to. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It relates. Promise. It's just. (laughs) It's no different from when guts and guts and Caspar were reunited after he came back to the Falcons, and they had their moment next to the waterfall. At that moment, they were together, but they couldn't exactly share that moment or or expend that moment because the next day they're going out to rescue Griffith. They never really had a moment together for themselves, and so guts has never been able to reconcile that whole side of his life that whole like feeling of happiness like that a moment to be happy he's never had that ever yeah, yeah. you know yeah. and once once Casca comes back we're talking we're talking about what conflict is going to draw him out of Elfhelm well right now there isn't one so they might have a moment where they can live together and I wonder how long that'll last yeah it might not be it might be when things go wrong sure and again we're talking about things when we don't know what the conditions of Elfhelm are going to be we don't know anything about that so I have uh, another comment just what sort of brings to mind from everything we're talking about it makes me wonder do you guys think you know we're uh, we're in the end run here we're almost done here because uh like do you think it's going to be Elfhelm and then it's going to be basically you know the final chapter i think uh, I, th- I think we're in act four of act five or five acts personally yeah i, I would say that after Elfhelm, uh basically it will be so yeah i don't know if it would be the last chapter but the last arc at least yeah, yeah. okay yeah, I mean, last chapter. I mean, there could be many more chapters, but uh, yeah, I mean, okay. So we're not sure there's going to be, you know, like a bunch of Falconia politics and you know things like that. You know, a lot of introducing a bunch more stuff because that's the danger. Like, I feel like we always almost like we all we can do is sort of extrapolate what we know, and it's what we don't know that you know my Amira introduces. You know, you know. Well, one so thing many I'll volumes. Say- is yeah, I think I I don't think the story will end before volume sixty. So yeah. Oh wow. So okay. That, that's that's that's, gonna... that's totally a, that, I I buy that. Yeah, sixty sounds about right. Yeah. Um, real quick, this is just a quick yes, quick yes or no. Don't elaborate. Will there be a flash forward? Time flash. Oh fuck. Uh, no. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not entering that. No, you're not saying. I'm saying no. No. I, I say yes. So are you saying flash forward? Oh no! What do you mean by flash forward? You mean like one that's actually important to like the plot before like the climax or like resolution style? I mean before the final battle. Before from now. To oh, the I know what battle. you mean. Like like ten years later. There you, you know, go. Yep. Well, that's not a flat. Okay, when I you know I'm th- maybe I'm thinking of it in uh, different terms, but uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I can I can restate it exactly what I mean. Basically, you think a jump in time? Yes. Okay. Uh, Basically, I don't know. here we go. Let me put it. In, let me put it in context for you. Will we see Isidro and Shirk all grown up? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really tough question. I don't want to answer it. I say yes. <laughs> uh, well, I, as the creator of the twenty years later, you know, image, <laughs> I'll just go ahead and say I, I should support that idea. Yeah. <laughs> because you know, obviously, it's in my head too. But. Uh, I don't know. I think there. I think we could just see them get a little bit older, and that would be fine. That's the thing. It could just be like a matter of you know, yeah, like not yeah. ten years, but like two years, you know, yeah, something like yeah. that, where it's I, like I you agree. know, 
Yeah, I don't think it'll be that necessarily. No, no, no. I should have. I got my expectation. I I think it will flash forward a little bit. I I certainly don't anticipate it'll be that long. I I do hope there is a flash forward, just basically to cover some more ground in a little amount of time. You know, there's a lot to cover. Yeah. Well, the problem is, does it even count if it's like you know we cut from like in the past? You know, you'll cut from guts to Griffith or one side of the story to another, and then clearly. You know, a certain amount of time, maybe months have passed. I'm talking two plus years. Okay, so it has to be like that. Okay. Plus, two years. Go ahead. Two years. Uh, I think in Alpha, two years could happen. You know, yeah. you were talking earlier about uh, Gus and Casca having some time for themselves. Well, that could be the time, you know. Like, yeah, I agree. They get there, they stay there, they say, okay, let's forget about it. And then two years later, yeah. bam, something happens, and they are forced to, to get back out. But, you know, I would like that. I would like that to see Ishiro uh, and Shiroke a bit you know, older. But at the same time, I don't know. I would also like it if it didn't happen. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't want to promise Yeah, I myself. mean, they can just sort of implicate, like, what their relationship could be, like, when they get older, just from their actions, you know, if they don't grow up anymore. Yeah. Like, you can just see what sort of, like, the re- how the relationship develops. Like, I think we're all assuming there's going to be some sort of, you know, like, romantic link between the two. Yeah. You know, well, I think it's uh, Mura's done it again, you know, very, you know, very subtle way, mm-hmm. and uh, I think he could just keep doing that. Like they would get older, older, very, very slowly, and we could see it develop. I, I would like that. Sure, sure. Or they could, you know, have a weird, almost brother-sister relationship, like Serpico and Farney's, uh, <laughs> oh, and on no that perfect transition, as <laughs> yeah, pretty, yeah. I so smooth. Yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, seriously, uh, he's, he's been a ghost, you know, ever since uh, his defeat, defeat against Guts in Return. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no point to him. Really, is nowhere to go. Yeah. He's just, yeah. I mean, he's in limbo. He's just, he's, he's living, but he has nothing to do. He has no purpose. So I think he really, out of all the characters, he's the one who really needs, you know, a change, a big change. And I think he really will get a big change. So, yeah, I don't know. He, he's going to have to go on without Farnese mm-hmm. and uh, yeah I think in Elfheim something's going to happen to him I mean maybe he'll meet someone or some. You know, in any case something will happen and he will change in a big way I think he his whole worldview has been basically to protect Farnese from everything and yeah. there's, a, there's a panel in volume 33 when he sees Roderick and her together and he sort of has like an accepting look on his face like yep that's probably where she'll end up, and I it no longer necessarily needs me by her side to watch her every step, you know. Yeah, so I, yeah. I wonder if he'll be able to find someone else to dedicate his life to, or if he even needs yeah. that. You know, if he necessarily well, needs to be a you know need. Yeah, type. he he should live for himself, you know. I, I agree. Think. I agree. Well, examining it like sort of you know like taking a step back and like looking at it, you know, examining it with some blunt literary instruments. You know, people are always trying to predict if there's going to be a death, you know, or something like that. And he's certainly a How prime candidate you? for. Th- well, I mean, yeah, you know. yeah. How nice. <laughs> nice true. It has to be talked about. <laughs> he's a he's a prime candidate for death. Yes, yeah, true. I mean, he could die. It wouldn't change anything. Yeah, because like you said, either he has to go through a big change, or if there is no big change, then yes, die. Know, that, that's, yeah, I, that's I agree. A big change. I actually agree, and I think there will be a change because I don't think he'll die. But yeah, it's true. Either he changes or he dies. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> also. 
because he's a more sort of pragmatic, I'd say, person, like he's a little colder, a little more detached and objective, do you yeah. think he could sort of see like the like a folly in their trying to take on these forces? Sure. And could yeah. he like he could he could also potentially be like a betrayer? Because he could, like, you know, he's no longer with uh, Farnese. Is that how I should pronounce it? I think he's definitely yeah. dedicated to the group after the last duel with Guts. He seemed very... Yeah. He's, yeah. he's sold on Guts as a leader and Guts as a... Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think he betrays him. But, yeah. Okay. Uh, I think uh, it would be very interesting for him to have a new relationship with a new character, a female character. Exactly. A character <laughs> which would be very different from Farnese. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. You guys are going to love this. Okay, uh, who was the character from, uh, God, I'm what's... I'm loving it already. Loving yeah, it. no, Ian <laughs> from, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the game, for the DS, that's why you guys got me to buy one. Infinite Space. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. Like, that, that's sort of, like, I wasn't thinking major betrayal, but maybe, like, on that level. Oh, okay. Like, uh, I don't know. That's the, he's literally working for the other side in that, in that game. Right? But it wasn't like a thing where, but he wasn't, you know, uh, there wasn't animosity. Okay. Like, I, I just I, like, I, here's the thing, like, here's why I don't necessarily buy that. And I've, I've already said it, but if you look at volume 29, just after, it's when Serpico comes back from the duel. He has this look on his face. Like, it's removed all doubts that they were in the yeah. position. You know, that's that's why I really just don't, I don't think it would happen. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, I'm just throwing stuff against the wall. Sure, so. sure. Sure. <laughs> The the look on his face just con convinces me that he's he's in it to, he's in it to win it from now on. <laughs> yeah. So death more likely if uh, if not a big change otherwise. Yeah, I don't think he's a I don't think he's a betrayer. I mean, I, 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 I he's not the kind of character. But what if he thinks he's doing what's best for them? I guess is what I'm saying. Like if he thinks this is how he's going to protect her because you know they're going to all get killed in this, yeah, and maybe he can you know do something for them. It would be a repeat of the duel, you know. I mean, when the duel it was for that yep. he was yeah. trying to protect her from guts, and he realized that first he could never do that, and second, in any case, she's still you know safer with guts than with anybody else. So yep. yeah. yeah, I think right. it's been resolved, you know, and I think he'll never doubt that again. Um. Well, you want to talk about Volume Seventeen? Kind of do, yeah. Uh, All right. So last week we did a reread, uh, and we're going to probably be doing this every podcast, or at least try to pick something. And last week was different because I, I kind of had an idea for where I, what section I wanted to talk about, and, and why I wanted to talk about it. This week we're talking about Volume Seventeen, and I don't necessarily have a big overarching idea. I just think this is an amazing section of the oh, series yeah. that deserves reflection on because of all all of the character interactions and motivations that are involved in this. And it's, it's, a, it's a big worldwide event on the scale of what we're talking about in, in Falconia in that everyone sort of has the same similar supernatural experience. And the, the, section the Falcon Dream. Sorry? The, you mean the Falcon Dream. That's right. Yeah. We're talking about Revelations. Uh, it's a yeah. three-part three episode. The episode begins with a uh, big, extremely massive two-page spread of death reaping the world and it's talking about these individual dreams that people have but it, they happened all across uh actually it te technically happened all across holy sea territory it might have happened larger than that but that's our no i think it did that's, okay. isn't that why the kushans attacked mm, what is it or wait maybe i'm we're getting some false memories here let's, but let's, uh let's just go baby steps till we get there okay, basically okay. it's uh Everyone has a collective dream of calamity, and, and the, the big 
image that's collect that's the uh, the similar thread through all the dreams is that darkness covers the land, and then yeah. a falcon cuts through all of that and brings okay. them to. Uh, well, it doesn't say actually specifically, but basically the hawk is the, the falcon is the savior in this scenario. Yeah. So the it's falcon in, of light specifically breaks right. through darkness. Yeah. So it's basically the, the intent, of course, is that it's implanting the idea that the falcon will save the world yeah. from and they, darkness. They, they all have uh, personalized dreams, but with the same overall meaning. That he that they desire him basically. Right. Yeah. Des- desire. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, if you, if you if you look at the the individual breakdown of the of the dreams, it's saying uh, a kingdom of villages is dying from plague, uh, a village or a city was devastated by an earthquake, the sun is blacked out by smoke. Um, each uh, individual dream converged on one idea, and of course, yeah. darkness and the falcon. So that's the basics of it. Uh, so that happens in like three pages, and it jumps into Raban uh, visiting. Now, here's what, one thing I wanted to talk about. What is Raban doing in this section? What is his mission, necessarily? I'm pretty sure... Well, actually, it's hard to say, but I think uh, he's part of the search for the Falcon for Griffiths, I think. I agree, and I did not pick up on that until my recent reread, and I always thought he was just investigating cities that were infested with plague, basically trying to like map out where the problem areas are. But I, I think the plague here is incidental. Like He actually is shocked yeah. when a, he finds a kid that has the plague. Yeah. Yeah, runs, pretty much. He rides ahead to the city and sees everyone's dead. Later, he has kind of an inner monologue about uh, the desperate search for Griffith. And how that, stupid it is, basically. Yeah. But also, at the same time, he sort of ties it together where, you know, maybe there's a better, there's a higher purpose to look at. You know, like, right. there isn't a good reason for finding this guy, and it's not the reason we're looking for him, but... Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Actually, he, he's, you know, you know, I mean, his part is, uh, I think, can be coupled with Owen's well, they, it brings context to the country situation, the king's madness, the search for Griffiths, mm-hmm. which is actually in a large part responsible for the country's desolation mm-hmm. because they used most of the resources of the country after the war with Tudor ended to yeah. search for Griffiths. And uh, they are skeptics of you know, the dream, the miracle and such a thing, but they can't deny what's happening and they can't help but think of Griffiths yeah. and relate him to the Falcon of Light. Right. I also thought that was a neat touch, and I wanted to talk about that real quick. Is that you know, Mir is in, included like a, a physical um, problem with, with the, of the war's aftermath, and that you know, really detailed writing, and that water comes and floods these people because the trees were removed because of the war. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> foresight yeah. into the same with the detail. rats. Yeah, and it's yeah. exactly this. It's all interrelated, and that's the kind of foresight and detail you don't get in a lot of stories. Another. Yeah line I really wanted to talk about, and this is just small, this is just me being a dork, and that um, Raban encounters this old man, he's like the, one of the last people living in the city, and the guy simply says to him, uh, tells, tells Raban, waving your sword around will do no good in these parts, and it kind of makes him think for a moment, and it really made me think of kind of the, uh, you know, the premise for a lot of the supernatural things in the series, that there are larger, there are events larger than humans that humans can do nothing about, and this you know, touches on the premise for for many other things in the series, and I wanted to see if you guys thought that that was necessarily what was happening, or if it was just a one off. Uh, wow. I think it was just in re- you know relation to you know like your sword can't touch the plague, you know. But yeah, that's sure. a metaphor too. For I mean, obviously, because it becomes even more of a metaphor because we see you know Conrad's face appear, yeah, you know, sure. in, the, in the rats <laughs> of the plague. So yeah, I think it's both. I mean, the comment is just a you know a clever comment the guy makes to him kind of a kind of a ballsy comment too you're talking to a general you're just a small guy but you know fortunately raven's uh 
yeah. an understanding and reasonable man. Well, he's got appreciates it. Old man's like, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I mean, yeah, I see what you're saying there. I think it's you know, it's both. It works on both levels. Sure. Actually, I, go ahead, Azil. I, I was going to say I agree. I don't think it's a, it was specifically meant to be very deep and suggesting, but yeah, yeah it it works, and uh, yeah, I believe it uh, it does relate to the fact. Uh, there are bigger events happening, and Conrad is a proof of that. Sure, yeah. And I actually don't have a hell of a lot to say about Conrad's appearance other than, wow. <laughs> wow, well, it's yeah. fucking cool. Yeah, it, what exactly, <laughs> I wanted to talk about a little bit of what exactly is happening. So he formed from rats. Yeah, I'm yeah. not going to ask why, because fuck, why not? You know? He kind of pops. And then, he, and then he spits out some ghosts, basically. <laughs> well, yeah. to me, it's basically like, uh, well, first you could look at it like the ghosts are sort of possessing the rats, so that's why it pops yeah. after, you know, and they're forming oh, his okay. face. I think of there's course. a little cause and effect there. Yeah. But also it's, you could also see it, like I see it a little bit as like he's trying to, it's him forming himself, but like he can't do it and then pop, which sort of brings us back around to where we are today. Like that was sort of the best they could do before. Yeah, yeah, of course. And the same goes with Slan into fire yeah. during the origin of the cave. And uh, yeah. I-, I think the ghosts, yeah, they show that Conrad is behind the plague. You know, I mean, it's very obvious, but basically, he's the one who's engineering the plague. Yeah. And when the ghost possesses the rats, it allows him to yeah manifest himself a bit more. You know, it's it's interesting how thematically because they bring this back around in uh in the is it the I think it's the Fantasia episode itself. You know, yeah. he's like death. You know, he's made out of rats again with like those skeletons in it. It's a very right. yeah. That. yeah yeah where it's like he's sort of it's almost like if they had roles or specific purposes. I mean, he's like very tied with like death, like almost yeah. like a four horsemen like uh yeah. Indeed, he's a, he's basically the god of diseases. You know, right? Yeah, Just pestilence. Exactly. <laughs> Pestilence or death. We yeah, yeah. it could be. Take your pick. Force walks. Yeah. Um, and, and then the next episode is uh, focusing on uh, what's the happening king. inside Wyndham. Yeah. And one thing I really liked about this opening up into it was uh, it's kind of patriarchal of Mira, but basically everyone in town is looking towards the castles for what's going to happen. Basically, you know, the people in control of our lives are just in disarray and they're just waiting for the king to die. The small, small, minuscule detail I wanted to mention because I'm again I'm a Skull Knight Berserk Gazeric nerd. On the king's um, bed, there's some there's five banners on the bed. You don't normally see. I mean, I love seeing the iconography that Mira creates because I I always wonder if we'll see it again. If we'll see those little symbols show up again, but one of them actually is uh, it looks like a half moon. It's on the far right of the top of the king's bed. There's a star yeah. over it. It's similar. I'm not going to say it's exact, but let me think about it. Of the yeah. same insignia that Kaiseric wears in Volume Ten in the flashback. Well, you know, uh, good eye. It was actually explained that uh, Midland was, you know, divided mm. according to. So the flag of Midland is composed as a half moon, a sure. sun, yeah. stars, a thunderbolt, and a tower at the center. And the tower stands for the Tower of Rebirth. Yeah, I, yeah. So yeah. You know, the flag of Midland itself, which we can see in several several times in the series, uh-huh. it's very. I mean, uh, it's tied to Geyseric. It it always was, and uh, yeah. And, right. But yeah, you're, you're right. The uh, symbol uh, with the half moon and the star on top of it is yeah. I, I just wondered, yeah, because obviously he's the guy that established that kingdom, and I wonder if some of his iconography was passed down, even though he didn't leave any lineage, obviously, or anything like that. But I wondered if anything else was passed down. So well, is that in question? Hmm. Isn't the I mean there's the rumor isn't the that's accurate isn't there like the rumor that you know the royal family was related to Gazric by blood 
Uh, I, I can't remember. I remember talking about that long ago, but I don't remember where it's sourced on. In uh, volume ten, is that is that accurate as? Yeah, I'm not sure about it, actually. Uh, I'd have to, I'd have to look at I want to make sure that's not some like transliteration or old theory that I've canonized. Uh, Honestly, off the top of my head, I can't say, but... Uh, I, 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 I can say, I remember distinctly in Volume 10 that they say he left no heir for his kingdom. That's all I remember. But that the Midland royal family claims to be from him or something, some kind of yeah. inconsistency. Yeah. yeah, that could always just be like your, your usual political bullshit. You yeah, know. exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm related no... to Caesar. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's a final word on it, but uh, it might be the case. Who yeah. knows? Here's, okay, I actually have the line right here if you want me to read it. Um, the emperor had no children, so it isn't a direct line. But it is said that even out of the, all those countries, the Midland royal family is the one that carries Geyseric's blood. Well, what the hell does that mean? That's contradictory. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he had a brother. I don't know. So, like, Charlotte could be his great, 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 great grandniece or something. Right. But anyway, that was just a small aside for just a random symbol I saw on the bed, and I thought that was neat. And I just wanted to see what you guys thought. So, uh, Foss makes an appearance here and re- solidifies his role as a Griffith supporter, you know. Yeah. Which obviously comes into play later yeah, on. He's a is believer. Uh, Owen discusses the dream, so it's reconfirming that it was spread across the land, and it wasn't just a couple people, select people. Everyone had one. Uh, and I don't, not too much more to say about this section unless you guys. Well, well what about think, the king's dream? Yeah, well, I'm very I was, interested. I was, was going to go to that. Yeah, I, I'm very interested by the king's dream actually, okay. which is the first of the three dreams we are we are shown. Right. One subtle thing is that whenever there's a dream sequence, you guys probably already know this, but maybe not everybody does, uses black panels in the background to solidify that this is a dream sequence. I thought that was neat. Black, yeah. black borders around it. Kind of just. Yeah, I agree. Kind of confirming that that's the case. Uh, the king kind of reinforces the idea that he's attracted to warmth and he hates cold more than anything. He says that in volume mm. 9 or 10, I think it is. And Charlotte is his warmth. Yeah. The way. It's, yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, a way of talking about Charlotte to me. Right. Like, she, she's the one, you know, the only one who can give him warmth. Right. I, I like the uh, the imagery of his dream, actually. I think it's very, very well done. The fact that he's so isolated yeah. and just surrounded by defenses, but not really. Yeah, which uh, they are basically, basically imprisoning him as much as they are protecting him. More yeah, possible. it's it's exactly what Griffith, uh, you know, talked about. You mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, you know how even the nobles, even the king, can't decide. You know what he does with his life. Right. So I yeah. mean, it sort of illustrates that. It's sort of confirming that. And I believe, I mean, the dialogue at the end of that part is the king sort of even he comes to grips with like Griffith. You know, sort of. You know, maybe maybe the reason I'm looking for this guy is because you know. I do want him to take my place or something. I think there's something in there like that, even though it's yeah. totally indeed. Yeah, sure. It's totally sort of contrary or like unnatural to what yeah. it would be. But it's like in his delirium when he's dying, even he comes around, you know, on that front. Like you know, subconsciously maybe you know there's a reason I, I'm pursuing this guy because you know I want him to take my place because you know he's the one. Well, I think he wanted release. Is what he says. He wanted yeah. release from this prison yeah. into, into madness and and what. Griffith, I'm sure Azil's going to say this. I'm going to beat him to it. Is that the Falcon Dream, <laughs> the version, his version of the Falcon Dream, the escape from darkness for him is that Griffith comes away and basically ends his life. Mm. Yeah, and I, 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 I would, think. Go ahead, Azil. 
I was going to say, I find it very interesting that you see the Falcon come and, you know, basically uh, surround Charlotte with uh, his wings. Right. And uh, takes the warmth away from the king, and basically that's when he dies. Yeah. So it goes to show that the Falcon of Light can actually kill people from their dreams. And it's shown further later so, on when, uh, with Zod. Yeah. 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 And then, of course, the... Uh the mountains start moving, as the kid says, and the cushions arrive, <laughs> yeah. and that's pretty much it for people of one. Well, one, one I love that line. I was actually going to mention that uh, yeah, too. That's... Just it's like the emperor's new clothes, sort of a thing where you know, from the mouths of babes, like why are the mountains moving while well, everyone's worried about you know the king? Yeah, yeah. One other I... quick thing I wanted to say was that Owen. It's it's really kind of naive and hilarious that Owen's com- complaining. Not complaining. He's saying the state of the world's in disarray. There's a plague. There's the king's dying. It's in such a dark state. Could it be that the Falcon's going to save us from this? Like, he obviously had no fucking clue what was coming, you know, that the darkness hadn't even started yet. The darkness yeah. that would veil, envel- envelop the land is not even there yet, so. Yeah, actually, I also think uh, what we see of the king, the Falcon basically killing him, uh, I think it's a, it's a window into the master plan of the God End, what it was all along, to weaken Windham so that the Kushans could invade it easily. Mm. Which uh, afterwards led to uh, Ganishka facing up with Griffiths and sure. going through his uh, second transmutation. So, even from them on, from that early on, basically it was already laid. The plans were being laid for what happened in Volume uh, 34. Sure, yeah. Way, way back. I mean, if you think, obviously, the, the Hundred Years' That's, War and the search for Griffiths yeah. we can win, win them. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's 17 volume la- volumes later. So, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> One thing I wanted to ask you guys. Um, what, why now? Why? Uh, obviously, there's a lot of planning involved in this with the God Hand and everything else. But why did they choose this exact moment to use this collective dream to, to make it happen? Uh, What's the timing one, for, that, for that about? Something interesting I wanted to, before I uh, answer that okay, is sure. just about the way the whole dream is portrayed, like at the beginning. Mm-hmm. How it's sort of instead of like you know Mira like showing people sleeping, you know, and then like oh they're having this dream or something. It was like all explained almost like a documentary. At the beginning of yeah. that part, like a narration, like it's all in the past tense. It's sort of passive, you know, where it says, "Oh, by the way, you know, everyone had this dream." It happens you know? from time to time. He'll use yeah. a, he'll use a first-person narrative voice. Yeah, I, just, well, I thought it was an interesting choice, just because of the way it's sort of like you know, like like I said, like sort of a news broadcast about you know this is going on in the world, like for the audience, you know, rather than showing like just to let us know how big this is, like with sure. you know yeah. very economically, and then we get I, sort of the individual examples after the fact. Sure. Yeah. We don't. We, yeah, go on. No, I was going to say he says like it happened to everybody, and then he shows us the relevant ones. Right. Yeah. We'll get definitely more to talk about that for sure. We're we're building up <laughs> to a big argument between me and the seal. I promise. Um, I'm going to settle it too. I'm the I'm the tiebreaker. That's cool. Uh, the next section is one of my favorite <laughs> episodes. I love I've I've loved this episode since I first started reading Berserk. It's just a great moment. Zod just kind of you know what I'm going to kill people just because the fuck it. Why not? You know because I'm Zod. <laughs> Three hundred guys. It's like obviously. Yeah, as if whoever he's searching for is among these fucking random losers. You know what? I might as well kill them, sure. Sits on a pile of corpses, contemplates his search. What is Zod's search? This is one thing I always come back to. I think about from time to time. The Look, ultimate strong one. Yeah. Is looking for strong people or the strong one? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But, but basically, do you think it's it's sort of similar to what Guts was searching for when he left the Falcons? He was looking for stronger and stronger opponents in order to test himself and things like that. Mm. 
I don't think so. Do you think, I, I or think, do you think it really is a search for something for a particular reason? You know, I think when Gus, you know, left the Hawks or the Falcons, he was looking for uh, a goal, a dream. Sure. He was influenced by Griffiths. Zod is just his whole life is about battle. That's that's all. Right. So, you know, I often think that Zod is basically Gus, you know, turned wrong. Like, what if Gus had, you know, turned himself into an apostle? That's what he would would have become so yeah yeah oh yeah i i, I agree because yeah, like a prototype I, of guts going wrong because yeah i think that's what you were kind of asking uh, walter like is it uh when you s- compared you know like what they were searching for mm-hmm. like how th- there's so many like guts and zod you know thematically like there's a lot of, you can compare them easily visually you oh, know yeah. kind of the way they look and all that and how, yeah, and what As said about him being, you know, yeah, if if Guts had gone down that path. But also in their search, yeah, I don't know. I think uh, Zod's search, like, I don't know if he was actually really in his head looking for, like, you know, some... Something you know, this specific. One, yeah, something specific. I feel like it's almost sort of aimless, because that's why he's going around killing 300 guys, is because he's just unsatisfied, you know, with his life, basically. He's like this interesting, like... Apostle, you know, uh, you know the strongest of them, among the strongest certainly, and you know he's he's not content. You know, I mean that's what this whole this part of the episode is about, and it's right. interesting that you know we don't usually get to see an apostle, let alone Zod, you know, sort of sitting and contemplating yeah, and being, you know, having it. these like, you know, introspective and depressing thoughts, you know, about his life, you know, and he's like thinking sure. of you know Skull Knight and how like he's the only one, but like you oh. know uh, you know he doesn't he doesn't like him, you know, it's like, I think he. I think in my translation in the Dark Horse when he calls him like that, that wretch is yeah, the only that's, one. That's, that's a, that, I don't think that's accurate because he, uh, he oh, usually yeah. more respectful. Exactly, not just that he kind of well, remembers him fondly as well. He probably calls him Sama or something like yeah. that. You know, I mean, so, so, yeah, there's a touch of affection in that as well, probably. Because, it's like you know, uh, I love that bastard, but exactly. oh man, this is this yeah. it. <laughs> you know. Anyway. Go ahead, Azil. I was going to say, that dream, it's also one of the first times, not the first time, but one of the first times, or one of the most significant times in which we see Zod's character being developed upon. You know, I mean, when yeah. Gus was, when Zod was yeah. introduced, he was just a monster. A monster. A monster. <laughs> but yeah, but as time went by, he became more deeper and deeper, and it just yeah. it's kept going on and on and on. And, you know, with the Cliff incident in Volume 27, I mean, who knows? Who knows what it? What you know? I, there, there might be no end to it. He might right. be very well, significant at the end of the story. Very. Yeah. But and I think yeah. that scene played a part in it. Well, that's that. It's a perfect transition into this next part. What is Zod's motivation? What is Zod's allegiance? Well, here's the thing. Like I was going to get to that next uh, too. Because uh, like, was he looking for someone to? serve possibly because like if he wasn't looking for that then it definitely puts you know it brings up that question again you know his allegiance because was he looking for someone you know just who is stronger than him does that mean he didn't really you know consider you know the god hand or void were they like too far away or because they weren't in the same world he was in here's here's what i've always thought and it's not necessarily grounded in reality it's based on i think he must have received some kind of oracle oracle long ago way back 300 years ago that began his search I think he was probably looking for something specific, and the reason I think that is because of his quick turnaround and his allegiance changes from uh, personal search to being completely 100% dedicated to Griffith. Because yeah. he gives him this death, he gives him this, this vision of his death, 
And I wonder if that was what the, the key triggering moment for him, realizing that he was the one that he was supposed to follow all along, you know? That's uh, what I've always thought. It's an interesting question. No, do you find think, it, like... Oh, sorry, Az. No, I was going to say, I actually find it very interesting that, you know, the Falcon of Flight shows up, Zod recognizes who it is. He yeah. knows. But he, he still fights him. He's confused, I mean, actually. He says, why, why you, basically? Yeah, but, you know, he still fights him. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I find, it's fucking. I I think it's fucking badass, you know. I mean, he, does, he doesn't give well, a shit. He tries it. He gives it a shot anyway. Well, it's not just well, that. Uh, Griffith kind of chides him on. He says, "What yeah. you saw were never words." And then yeah. it's kind of like pushing him, egging him on to fight. And of course, Zod's going to take that, so he jumps. Yeah. In and... Well, I've always interpreted it as this was sort of Griffith, like sort of breaking him in. You know, the dominance play. Like he shows him who's boss, cuts his. You know, I literally like. You know, it's very. Uh, the imagery and what you could read into it, you know, when he cuts his his very pronounced horn off, yeah, well, <laughs> like I think, literally I think, makes him his. I think that's just how you communicate with Zod effectively. You show, yeah, him, you know, yeah. you well, use no, his the, language. I I haven't really thought about it this way, but I mean, I'm just going to pose the question now, just to get it out there. But like, do you think that this, you know, this settles it? Like that, you know, Griffith, you know, the fight's been fought, and you know, Griffith is shown his dominance over Zod, and that's the end, and Zod's going to fight to the death form. Or do you think there's an end game for him and Zod, where sort of like what you know Rakshas has uh, like intimated, like where he says you know he wants Griffith's head. Like, does does everyone in a sense want to like eventually like does their desire for Griffith, you know, does some of it like half the people you know, they want to worship him, and other half they want to kill him, you know, or at least test themselves against him or something? Do you think there might be something like that in mind for Zod, and like he could get you know disillusioned from that somehow, or do you think he's just basically going to be a servant until the end? Well, I think he could maybe not rebel or try to rebel against Griffith. And uh, it wouldn't be like a rebellion. It would be more like you know, okay, now is your okay. You know, it would be like Griffith. You know, would be inviting him. Yeah, I think he could let something slip by. You know, I mean, not like a big betrayal, but I think he could he could let something slip. But at the same time, I mean, I'm speaking about guts because uh, Griffith's main opponent is going to be guts. I think that really wants to fight with guts. So I don't think he would just like. Guts, you know, go to Griffiths without trying to fight. Oh him. no! Yeah. So no, I, yeah, I, I think eventually, you know, Zod's going to be killed by Guts. So, well, yeah. from his introduction, Zod's always been shown as kind of apart from the main crowd. He kind of just does his own thing to a certain extent, yeah. you know. So I, I, I don't, I don't think that role will necessarily change. At the same time, dream of you know Zod's dream. I think it, it's it's a good window into how every apostle was convinced. To serve uh, Femto, basically. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm sure some of them were more than happy to serve, you know, without any persuasion. But those who actually didn't want to, well, they did anyway because they were shown who's boss. Right. Yeah. So let's go to the, <laughs> let's go to the main bout here. Uh, the next part That's of the episode a... is guts. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, my my. Thing. Anyway, main event time. Yes, uh, Guts uh, looks for a place to sleep. Basically, Puck points out an area where uh, they used to enshrine elves. I think is what he says in the Dark Horse translation. So, and instantly jumps into a dream sequence. Done that with the black bars. And yeah. here's one. The first thing I wanted to point out in this panel here is this is not a Falcon of Light dream necessarily. Look at the imagery of the the Falcon here. It's dark. It's the the it's 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 silhouetted against the moonlight. So. Before the Falcon was always a savior. Here it's an oppressor. It's dark. Not and necessarily, you know, really? because yeah, it starts with darkness. Sure. Okay. But you know, keep in mind, 
you know, who God sees and what his relation with the Falcon is. But of course, actually, it starts with darkness. But at the end, the Falcon burns very bright. It's on fire. Yeah, uh-huh. it's on fire, and it's a Falcon of light which breaks through the darkness, like okay. those dreams. So, moving a little further, because we're we're gonna we're gonna come back. We're just reviewing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he he wakes up, sees the his child is there in the shadow of one of the pillars, and he, Guts thinks he says, "You did this just now." He thinks the kid started the dream, whether he did or not. We're going to talk about uh, sees Casca, and then the kid relays an oracle about what will happen in the future. Yeah, uh, basically, Casca will die, and gives him context for the dream he just saw, basically, and even tells Guts maybe where he could start with that. So, is this related to or tangential from? The Falcon of Light dream that everyone had. Do you think this is just Guts' version of the Falcon of Light dream? No. Or, I, go ahead. No, I was going to say I think the the child also had a dream, and because he's you know part uh, darkness, he's a half spirit. Yeah. He he could interpret it. I mean, he knows what's going to happen. He knows mm-hmm. uh, in more details than you know uh, standard humans. So mm-hmm. he's telling Guts basically it's redundant with the dream. Gus doesn't understand anything with the dream, but the child shows up and tells him, like, Casca's in danger, she's going to die, you need to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this this particular dream, do you think this was a direct... Was it was it related to what happened with everyone else? Like, the same the same dream about death and famine and plague and darkness enveloping the land? It's the dream Gus uh, had of Casca? That's, yes. Do you think that's Gus' version of it, or is this a separate message from the kid? Oh, of course, to me, the dream is a uh, falcon dream or so. It, 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 it features a falcon prominently. So, yeah. can, I, uh, can I weigh in? Go sure. for it, yeah. All right. What my interpretation before, I guess you guys can fight more after this. <laughs> it doesn't sound like we're okay. really fighting, though. Is that I think it is like, I think it's as much related to the falcon dream as Zod's was in that, you know, it may not have been the same like dream everyone had, or maybe everyone had a different dream. And this is Gut's unique version, but it's all set. What the whole point of the dreams are is to set in motion what needs to happen. And this is what Guts needed to see in order to get him to go there, just as Zod needed to, you know, have the dream he had in order to get him there. So that's and, and, how I sort of interpret it as why this is this is what Gut's version of the dream is. You know, he doesn't need anything about how a falcon is going to save him, you know, or anything. He wouldn't respond to that. So he had this dream. And I don't know if the kid, and this might be your question, Walter, if the kid is part of that mm-hmm. directly or if he's just showing up there, you know, not by coincidence, but, you know, sort of, you know, support giving him, you know, like, explaining the subtext to him like you're dummy you know here are the cliff notes you need to go here <laughs> like I, I know that was a little heavy for you dad so uh let me explain <laughs> but uh but, yeah i do think it's all part of the same thrust to get him there it's not just you know sort of something yeah i, I, I do I think wonder, it's all part of the same thing. i i agree with the latter half of your explanation and that the kid was there to give him specifics i, I totally agree with that how how the kid did it, I really like Azil's interpretation of that. It's actually one of the questions I had was, where uh, does that where does that kind of foresight come from? Be, well, basically, the, the nature of his being, he's tapped well, into those kind of forces. So. Yeah. Well, not only the nature of his being, but just because it's like the nature of his being, like if it's none of it's just a coincidence, he would he would feel that way anyway, right? But it's like it was his purpose to feel that way, so he would tell Guts that stuff, and he even uses like the same language that Zod got from Griffith. Right. Right. So it's like it's you know I don't I don't see any reason for like splitting hairs like and trying to see how it, I mean I feel like yeah it's all it's all part of the same you know it's the river is going in the same direction here you know it's right. all yeah. part of the same flow. You know one thing I have to say about it is that uh, 
It doesn't know theory of mine about this. Okay. What the dream shows is that Casca was supposed to die at the time, you know, during the incarnation ceremony. Mm. She, she wasn't supposed to live. And when, you know, Skull Knight told Guts about all that bullshit and which she basically uh, comes you know, comes back to the junction of times. Right. Uh, which is also what Femto said in episode uh, 304. Yep. And I, I think basically, yeah, Guts and company managed to save Casca but they weren't supposed to. She was supposed to die then. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe it will be what eventually gives him the strength oh. to triumph from Femto. So I think it's a very important event. Yeah. Yeah. I buy that. I can there we go. That. So it's like the seed of destruction that she's, you know, she's not supposed to be around, providing yeah. either guts or the child that kind of motivation and like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, then think, uh, let's focus on that for a moment. Then what, if that's the case, if Casco wasn't supposed to be rescued, then what's the seed of that rebellion is that what the kid does here in implanting the specifics of that to guts was guts not supposed to receive that message or does it go further from that well, i think no. they were supposed to both be there because yeah. of you know the effect that the branded ones being at yeah. the event it's just that you know he wasn't but i don't know i actually i don't know if i 100 percent agree with uh what as is saying there but i mean just uh for the sake of argument going with that theory yeah, I do think he was supposed to receive that message and they were both supposed to yeah. be there. Okay. I, I believe they were supposed to both be there, but she was going to die, you know? Mm. But yeah, it's just a theory. There's nothing to, to back it up. I mean, it's not, you know, it can't be proven right. In that scenario, what would have happened to Guts? Well, he would have eventually become mad and just died right. in exactly. battle. Exactly. I think it would have been the beast, basically. Yeah. <laughs> would have had no shackles at that point. Yeah. He would have just, yeah. And actually, I, later in the episode, well, this is jumping way ahead, but later in this, this volume, X, we talks about Casca's what kept him sane, him sane. So without Casca, it would have basically been, you know, the beast. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. There was something else I wanted to say here. And also, it's interesting to know because it's like obviously he still would have been motivated by hatred and revenge, but it's like he wouldn't have that positive energy in his life at all. Like, where, like, right. that, that would have pretty much been the destruction of him. He would have just been a wild dog that, you know, Griffith could have cut down. Poor Where Puck, is... though. Poor Puck. Come on, he's got, <laughs> he, has, he does something for guts. <laughs> he cracks uh, Not anymore. Now he's, you know, a Sidro's little comedy buddy. <laughs> That's it. But, uh... Anyway. But... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, I think the dream was meant for guts, but you talked about the child early on, and uh, I think the child showed up very simply to try to get guts, his father, to save his mother, very yeah. simply. I I agree. I, I, definitely, that was his motivation. The kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, I guess that wraps up volume seventeen. I had a couple more things, but we talked about it way too long. I think it was. I'm not saying it wasn't interesting. It was. I just want to keep rolling because we're uh, a bit further in than I thought we would be. Um, we have lots of questions from members. Do you guys cool with uh, doing some of those? Yeah. Before that, I, yeah, I sure. want to talk about. You know, there's a. Some video or Japanese shows that uh, Darklink posted about on the forum. And, oh, yeah, uh, go for it. Yeah, I actually watched it recently. Uh, in it, they confirmed that the movie will be shown in theaters overseas. So, oh, wait. Yeah, go, pre- go back and repeat what you just said. I didn't quite understand it. It confirms that the movie will be shown in theaters overseas. The so, first movie. The whole yeah. Movie. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and uh, there's some comments from Mura uh, in this video because he sent a letter to whoever or whatever. And in it, he says that when he started drawing the manga, I mean, it's, it's the same thing he always says. He said when he started drawing the manga, he knew very little about the Middle Ages. So his inspiration wasn't so good. And he says the castle battle scene 
in the movie the best animated scene of a castle battle uh, he's ever seen. Wow. And uh, wow. that he still doesn't know much compared to the animating teams which are, you know, doing it. So he's basically being extremely modest, modest to a fault, like always. So I'm, I'm pointing that out because it ties to what I said uh, in the previous podcast, you know, about the fact he would probably love the details, the attention to details they're putting into the battle scene. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, it's basically the case. Yeah, and yeah, that's about it. In addition to that, you, I think you mentioned something to me about the quality of the 3D models you could see in that. Did you have anything to say about those? Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. So 3D CGI uh, looks pretty good uh, in uh, high quality, I mean higher resolution. Right. It's not perfect, but it's, it's better than in the 10-minute uh, trailer we saw. Sure, and, uh, and, and again, to, to underline that, you know, we were seeing the 10-minute trailer in like 320p or something like that, really low resolution. So yeah. always wonder what it would look like at 720p or 1080. So Yeah, well, it's, it's not that bad. It's, it, uh, in a way, it's less bad. Yeah. So that was pretty good. Pretty encouraging. Well, wow, that's bad. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Regarding the movie, I got my Aria CD just yesterday, actually. Ah. Finally shipped. It's pretty good. I, the karaoke version is pretty much what you'd expect. Um, I've already talked about Aria on the podcast, so I won't say very much, but I finally got it. Um, in more movie news, the past two weeks, we've really been looking at the box office numbers. I don't want to do this every week. It seems redundant, but... Basically, it's nothing. It's not improving. So, I mean, that's all there really is to say about. It. Yeah. Um, well, then let's keep praying so that it gets yeah. better. So we have a couple user questions here um, from uh, Grail and uh, Siphon, and actually, my wife and my wife helped test things out with me uh, for the recording, and uh, she asked some questions herself. So, hopefully, they won't be too embarrassing. So here we go. Um, first, first question comes from Grail. Are there any manga series that you're enjoying at the moment? Are there any that you'd recommend to the Berserk community? Uh, I'll answer real quick first. I don't, I, don't, I don't currently follow any other series except Real, which comes out very slowly. Uh, Vagabond's on hold, although it's apparently coming back soon. But I, I pretty much only follow Berserk, so that's me. Yeah, I only follow Berserk as well. Okay. Yeah, I only follow Berserk and Vagabond uh, when it's uh, yeah when it's back. I'll be following that, and that would also be my recommendation, obviously. Right. And next question comes from Lord Lath. I think that's how you pronounce it. How was how, how has Berserk affected your outlook on art or standards? Do you make comparisons to Berserk, or is it separate from all else to you in terms of quality, depth, personal value, etc.? I can answer that in terms of other manga and other comics, I guess. Uh, I don't necessarily really compare. Well, I don't know. Maybe I do. Um, I, I think it's the it's the best comic I've ever come across. You put it that way. I, I, I've never seen anything that, that held that held a candle to Berserk in terms of the breadth of the story, the, the the level of planning and detail that Miura puts in the story, and the level of art. It's it's continually getting more complex as the series goes on. It's just it's insane. So I, I don't know of anything that can even compare to it. So in terms of comics, there's nothing else like it. For me, yeah, I agree. To me, it's the best, really, the best ever, and I don't compare it to anything else because uh, it's a waste of time. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really do uh, a lot of comparisons either. I mean, I, like I recognize like what kind of story it is versus like maybe sort of a non-traditional like story. If I'm seeing a movie or reading something like that, I think of them differently that way. But I do see it as sort of something unto itself. 
And also, I mean, to me, it's just, you know, it's very personal because uh, it's sort of the story I've always wanted ever since I was a little kid. I used to think about like, you know, movies and stories like R-rated movies. And it's like, you know, they have to like, you know, they have to cut away during like a sex scene or they can't show, you know, a certain amount of violence. Mm-hmm. And I used to always think, now, why can't they do, like, you know, I would think, like, you know, my kid thought was, like, why can't they make, like, an Oscar movie, but where you can show that stuff, too, and it's not just, you know, like, for the sake of doing that, it's not gratuitous, it's actually part of the reality that right. enhances it. And so Berserk is, that you know, it was, like, in many ways, it it delivered that for me, so it was, like, almost like my own little prophecy I had where I wanted a story like that, and Berserk was it, so. Right. For me, it's actually similar in that I read uh, American comics throughout middle school for me, you know, ages 12 through 15 or so probably. Uh, Pretty religiously, I'd go to the comic store probably twice a month, and I was following X-Men, Spider-Man, actually Image Comics as well. I read Spawn for a bit. Yeah, it's true. But what I was looking for, they didn't have. And what I eventually was looking for in comics was a continuous story, something that built on previous chapters and issues that didn't necessarily end where it started, and that was my biggest critique of American comics, and why I've never been back since, really, is that the stories don't build on themselves. Berserk is a continuous flowing story, where actions have consequences, characters are forever changed because of events, the story's continually moving forward, it never goes back, you know, and that's always what I've been looking for. Of course, many manga do that, many many different manga series do that, but Berserk's been spanning 20 years, and it's continually moving forward, you know, and uh, there's nothing else like that, in my opinion, so... Next question is from Seifan. It says, do you consider yourself a fan of anime or manga in general before you were introduced to Berserk? If yes, has Berserk's quality made it difficult for you to appreciate other series? <laughs> uh, for me, it's yes and yes. I was kind of hunting around for a, a good series. when I Actually, here's very, very quickly, chronologically, the first anime I ever saw was Akira, uh, the movie. And that was in 1996, probably. And, you know, I kind of floated around different series from that. Everyone has a little Evangelion area where that's, like, you know, the coolest series for, like, a <laughs> month or two. Then you realize how pretentious it was. And, you know, from that, I probably watched, like, I don't know, probably a new anime, like, almost every week. I had a local video store that rented out stuff, probably illegally. But I had my I had tastes of many different series. But for me, it was pretty much once I saw Berserk, I stopped shopping. You know, I stopped being interested in other series. And that's how it's been ever since. So... That's me. Well, yeah, well, I guess I, I've had uh, quite a bit of exposure to anime series in general because, for one, they were on TV when I was a kid, so I grew up watching them. But I don't know if I ever considered myself a fan, really, of anime or manga in general. I read quite a few manga and uh, I saw quite a few anime, and it's true. Ever since Berserk, I just, you know, I haven't been very interested in it. Yeah. But I'm Maybe, not sure. If- uh... Yeah. Maybe you don't want to be associated with some of the people that call themselves fans. Is yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, it's a true actor. Yeah, they're I, a bit I, much. I yeah. never wanted to, so yeah. I don't know if it's because of Berserk in general or if it's just my, you know, my personality. But in any case, yeah, yeah, yeah I just, I would say it's the same for me. Yes and yes to both questions. Like I did, you know, follow anime, not so much manga, like, Berserk is actually what got me, you know, probably to make the jump to manga. I mean, I mean, I probably read, like, Dragon Ball or something, the manga, as well, before uh, that, and, like, I've read other series, but, yeah, it's, like, in, I don't know if it's a matter of just Berserk, you know, like, it's, it's one or the other, it's, or it's, maybe it's both, it's just that, uh, yeah, I, 
I haven't been able to find anything else that really compares to it, you know, except for, uh, like, just following Vagabond, like, on the side. And also that I probably was just not interested in it in general. Like, you know, that phase of my life passed, and, like, Berserk is, like, the only thing I hold on to from it. Mm. It's the only thing, you know, that was worth sort of keeping. Yep, So. Yeah, it's it's you know it's sort of the chicken or the egg. It's like did I get less interested in this stuff because Berserk was so much better, or you know did I just lose interest in it and I kept Berserk because it was so much better? But you know, to me it's uh, to me it's not obvious. Like if there if I if there wasn't a Berserk, I would not be in, invested in manga or anime in general. It would have been a relic of the past for me, like a bad memory yeah. if I didn't if I still have <laughs> Berserk. So that's me. Um, Next question comes from my wife. Uh, she asks. She actually she's named Erebus on the forums, but she doesn't post. So, uh, name one thing that not many people know about you. I thought a long time for this. I couldn't really think of anything interesting, particularly because you two guys know a lot about me. So, one thing I don't think anybody knows is really is that I drive a 1999 Buick Century, which is an embarrassing old person car. It's like this huge, huge ass car that you only see grandmas drive. And I only drive it because my last car broke down and died. I had a Subaru Impreza that was awesome looking. I love that car, but it died. And I've still been kind of just saving up money for a decent car. And so I've been driving this clunker ever since. The advantage of driving an old car is that uh, you can drive slow because everyone assumes you're an old fart. And so you don't get honked at or <laughs> people understand. <laughs> they see a Buick on the road in the right lane going at 35 miles an hour. Like, yeah, it's just some old fart. I can just, you know, chill as I'm driving. I don't have to be in the left lane, all stressed out about going fast. So that's my unknown thing. Well, man, that's really a tough question. I don't know. I have nothing interesting to say, I guess. Uh, you know how people can uh, cross fingers? Mm-hmm. Well, I can do that with my toes, you know. And I Holy just, shit. Yeah, like all the way? I, no, well, yeah. Not every toes, but yeah, there's uh, two of them where I can do it. Uh, you know, it's really, it's a long story. I basically used to always bend them. Mm-hmm. manually with my fingers like with my hands mm-hmm. for no reason because I'm uh, I don't know I'm weird yeah. and eventually I developed some kind of uh, some muscles there you know developed and now I can do it just <laughs> by myself wow yeah, I, I know that's weird and lame but uh, yeah <laughs> I drive a Buick so I still win yeah. and lame to <laughs> Okay, well, uh, I think I'm going to top you both. Okay, at first I couldn't think. I was literally, I came up with what my answer was going to be while As was talking. Okay. <laughs> and Because uh, <laughs> I was trying to think of stuff, and I couldn't think of anything uh, literally like appropriate to talk about like in public. It's all <laughs> it's all stuff that should be left private. But then I realized... You photographed see, I'm actually <laughs> No, <laughs> but uh, I, it was... Uh, I guess what I settled on is that, like, yeah, I, recently, I guess in the last, like, 10 months or something maybe even sooner, became, like, a big, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. <laughs> like, so, yeah, that's... So take that for what it's worth. Like, yeah, my girlfriend got me to watch, like, the whole series, all of Angel, I and I've even, Ooh, like, wow. keeping up... Yeah, oh, I'm keeping up... Yeah. Even with, like, you went real dark. Oh. oh, real deep. Yeah, I might watch Bones just, like, to, <laughs> just because... And maybe The Ringer. But, uh... No, and, yeah, I'm, like, I'm even following it, like, yeah, in comics still, like, because they still, like, they're going on. They're, like, doing, like, the seasons still, but in comic form, and it's, like, got the the same writer behind it and everything, Joss Whedon, who created it. He's done a lot of other series, Firefly, a lot of people on the board probably are fans of that. Yep. And, uh, I'm, yeah. So I've, I'm, I've seen some Joss, Joss Whedon stuff. I've seen some Buffy. I probably know most of Buffy because my wife watched it, and she kind of just told me some of the stories from it. So I probably know, I've probably heard more about it than I've seen it. 
Uh, I have seen Firefly. I thought it was okay. I, I don't necessarily. I didn't get into Firefly big time, but my yeah, my dad got into Firefly big, but uh, yeah, but for me it's Buffy, <laughs> and sure. so yeah, I bet a lot of people don't know that either on the board or in my personal life. I don't advertise it. Right, sure. I, I would not. It's <laughs> except on the internet now. So yep, it's out there. <laughs> Next question: What is your favorite childhood injury? Um, I have mine's a little longer story. Uh, do you, either you guys want to go first, or I'll just go into it. Well, uh, I'll just jump first. in then. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Griff. Uh, yeah, like, uh, I got two. I've never, like, broken my arm or anything like that. I've been very careful about this stuff. But the first one that's kind of cool is I was on top of, like, uh, a dining room table, and I mm-hmm. jumped off. And on the floor, there was a timer, but with the the actual, like, the clock part that shows you the readings pulled off. So it was just, like, the, the metal stick underneath sticking up. Mm-hmm. And I landed on it with my foot, and it Jesus. just punctured oh, in the soft part of my foot. It just like pretty much put a big red hole in my foot. Wait, wait, I just wait. Remember, did it go through your foot? It didn't go through the top. It went through. It just went through the bottom, through the, like the you know the fat on the bottom of my oh, foot. Geez. And I just remember looking at this red hole into my body, it was and like just being pouring blood, pretty out. traumatized. Yeah. Oh and I just, God. you know, I remember the moment before the blood came out. It was like even your body doesn't know what's happening yet. <laughs> what the it fuck, so man? What yeah, and another story on that. I got three. Sorry. This, Holy I'm going to be quick. I'll be quick. Uh, my dog, like, bit my arm and I yanked out. And so it caused, you know, that's the worst thing you can do if, like, a dog bites you. Do not jerk, you know, your arm away. And I jerked my arm away and it cut me. And I've still got a scar right on the vein on my wrist. Wow. And uh, I remember just distinctly, again, before it really started bleeding, just looking in and seeing, like, inside my wrist. And I could see, like, the veins, like, the, the ones deeper down. I could see inside. And Jesus. it was just, like, it was, like, yeah, it was looking at, like, a little, like, little highway system in there, a little freeway system, I should say. <laughs> Gross, and dude. Fi- yeah, okay. And the final and uh, best one, the be- probably the <laughs> biggest injury I ever had, I was, we have these French doors on, uh, like, pretty much in the middle, like bisecting our house, we got these right. French doors. What's a, and what's a French door? French doors? <laughs> well, you tell me. No, the French doors are these. Uh, they're doors that, like, they're two doors. Like, you close them, and they don't. Have, the doorknobs don't actually turn. You just push them open and closed, and they sort of like. That's how we, I've always called them the French doors. And so is my family. So I don't know if no, it's that means a anything. Term. It's a correct. Okay, oh. and so I had both of those open on, and they're like on either side of the house, and I was running through like the french doors like both ways like like basically like a racetrack i was running around the house like i was running on a racetrack mm. and the fireplace the hearth is uh on one side of the french doors in our uh, our living room and uh i'm running through i'm running through and i'm leaning to the side more and more as i do it i don't know why i'm a kid and i thought it would be cool to be leaning out as far as i could and so finally right at the moment when i'm running by that fireplace I I lose my balance and I go flying into the corner of it like mm. right into like basically it's oh. like as hard as brick. Wow. And yeah, I crack my head open. Jeez. And I'm like bleeding out everywhere and I go and like my, my you know my mom sees me I'm like, "Oh, wow, I'm hurting." And she just starts like crying. And then I remember towels on my head they're putting on my head and I look at them and they're covered in blood and they just drove me to the hospital. It was a whole big thing. Wow, I my head stitched up. I'd probably be like 10% smarter if that hadn't happened. So, wow. <laughs> you know, there's that. Anyway, uh, as. Well, yeah, I was about to say, I actually didn't really hurt myself when I was young. I mean, nothing uh, stands out. But there's oh, yeah. this one, one, you know, one time uh, I was in a vacation camp or something. We were 
climbing up a mountain, you know, just, you know, walking. There were steps carved in the stone. And I was just running around and jumping up and, you know, like a kid. And they kept telling me not to run in front of everybody because I was just really getting ahead. Anyway, I did that on the way up and I did it on the way down. And uh, when I was, you know, running down the stairs, I basically, I missed step and I propelled myself forward. And basically there was a cliff which was like 400 meters drop. So it was, you know, death for sure. And I, you know, caught uh, a vine, a sony vine, which prevented me from falling. Mm. So I bled pretty fucking, you know, I scratched my hand pretty bad. And the guys fucking yelled at me like, you know, (laughs) they didn't appreciate my bullshit. (laughs) Anyway, that's the one thing that uh, sticks out to me because I could have died. But yeah, I I never really hurt myself as a kid. It's interesting that this is sort of like morphed into like stupid shit we did as a kid because mine's um I was 16 years old uh, I have I have many injuries as a kid you know I'm not like a klutz or anything but I just got injured a lot but this one's a more interesting story in that I was uh, in a parking lot with a friend and we just come out of a grocery store got like Mexican soda or soda straight from Mexico and we both took a sip of it and it was like fucking disgusting and so like haha I I, I was gonna he smashed his uh, he threw his bottle. And so I smashed my bottle against, uh, I think it was a cart, like a shopping cart, in, in my hand. And it didn't necessarily break like it does in the movies or in Streets of Rage 2. It just sort of <laughs> like broke in my hand and like it was bloody uh, glass shards in my hand. And I was able to oh. remove, remove them all except for one. There weren't any bad cuts except for one huge cut on my pointer finger of my right hand, like massive cut. And I kind of just like didn't think much of it. I kind of just like I was putting pressure on it and I was driving home, which is stupid. And um, I got to my house, and my parents weren't home, so I was all alone in the house this weekend. And so I just noticed it. I just knew it was like spewing blood pretty a lot. And so my solution was to get a rubber band and just put it <laughs> on the, put it on the tip of the finger. And I was like, "Oh, solution!" Because the blood finally stopped. Awesome. Oh crap! It's turning white. That's probably bad. And so I go into the, the bathroom to get a closer look of it because it's brighter in the bathroom. And I I take the rubber band off after it had been on for like a minute or two. And just like a fire hose of like blood, like spewed out, like all over the mirror, like probably like one to two feet worth of gushing, like spread, like it was like oh, art- wow. arterial spray all over the fucking mirror. And then I passed out, and then I came back to, and it was a big blood pool, a pool, a big puddle of messed up blood on the floor. And long story short, I have no feeling in that part of my finger because it never peeled properly. Oh, so fuck. wow, I probably should have gotten stitches. Basically, is what I'm trying to say, and I never did because I didn't. Really think about it, and I was just a stupid kid. So wait, what did you do when you woke up? Uh, it, it, call, it, it, like... it it had clotted, and I cleaned it off with antiseptic and put a bandaid on it, and that was it. Oh my god! <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thank you, clotting agents. I have superior clotting agents in my blood. <laughs> That's my stupid injury. Um, that pretty much wraps it up. We have some things to talk about from the forum. Do you guys have anything to say about that stuff that I have written in the show notes, or no? Mm, not really. Okay, we'll talk about it next week, but. Um, that last thing wrapping up as usual or what have you been playing watching and reading well there's a snake eater demo on the 3DS yeah let's talk about this because we all have differing opinions of it actually I'm the only one that has a differing opinion apparently um, I'm not I'm not a big fan of what they did with the controls I think what they did with this tr- they made the controls to, uh, you have to basically requires a circle pad pro in order to record to play it like a real game because as it stands, the, the camera controls, which doesn't have auto-adjust camera. It's not like it tracks you around or adjusts to where you're moving. You have to use the face buttons, the ABXY, 
to yeah. manually track it around Snake. It, it feels like Griff said earlier. It feels like an N sixty four game. Like it's back to the old C button arrow controls for like Mario sixty four, but it's even more. It's it's worse though actually for yeah. trying to be better by giving you like total control because it's like you you would to make it work you would have to be constantly adjusting. Yep, and then yeah. they also have to aim with these fucking controls. So if there's a yeah, that's the real embarrassing. If there's part. a guard like slightly to your right, you got to hit it, but don't hit it too far because you go past him and you got to go. Well, also, if he's at a diagonal angle, you know you have to up. you know go over and then up, and oh, it's just infuriating. And I can't imagine. Anyone playing the game like this in this way, if you had a Circle Pad Pro, it's simple. It's another analog dial. I mean, it makes more sense, but it's just broken, in my opinion. Uh, I've played only about maybe 15 minutes of it. I got in, like the third screen where you can climb a tree, and I noticed that you can use the DS uh, gyro to jump on or off the tree. It was stupid. I'm not a big fan of it. I, think I didn't even of- discover that. Yeah. No, well, I just played I... it to the end. You just played oh, it to ahead. the end? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, I was straight to the end. Is there's a part on the bridge where there's also the gyro controls? Yeah, I saw yeah, that. Yeah, it's a gimmick. Uh, yeah, it was just stupid. That was that that pissed me off. But uh, yeah, I kind of got you. I played it twice, and the second time I kind of I got used to the controls. Like the first time, I didn't even know what I was doing with the controls. It was just such a nightmare. Like even stuff like even the second time before I learned how to do it. Like even unequipping and equipping guns. Mm-hmm. is done in this bizarre, you have to equip them oh, in the yeah. menu screen, and then yeah. you have to re-equip them again on a separate... Like, it took me forever to figure out, like, why isn't yeah. it just giving me the gun? So that was bad. But I actually kind of appreciate, like, the how they use the buttons, because I was wondering how the game... Like, how is it even playable at all without the Circle Pad Pro? Like, yeah. that was my... And so I thought that was actually kind of like, oh, wow, they're using the buttons in a totally awkward in in a way they were not intended to be used at all but it's kind of clever because it's like if you have you know it's it, i thought it was you know i appreciated the ingenuity yeah. even if it doesn't really work yeah. and uh i don't know i got used to it like it definitely cuts off certain ways of playing but i basically the second time i played it i just decided to kill everybody mm-hmm. something i like to do <laughs> and uh yeah so i would like knock them all out or use the sniper rifle on them either before or after i knocked them out with the the M22, mm. and I, I kind of got used to the controls. It just makes it very, like I can actually see it not being a problem on like an extreme difficulty run because it's like you're being so uh, methodical Careful. anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, it does. It certainly doesn't make it like fun to run and gun or like you can't aim that way. You cannot. You you really can't play that way and have it be fun unless you really got used to it. And yeah, right. so it's weird. Yeah, I, I didn't really mind the controls. I mean, yeah, it's awkward, but uh, well. I could play. I didn't mind it yeah. too much, but but the menu, yeah, the menu equipping guns that was retarded. Yeah, that was really that was not well done. Because yeah. it was like they were like, oh, we made it so we're using the touchscreen, but they made it separately from like another menu you have to do. So it's like they kept both ways, and it's like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. If you look at the options, you actually can manually switch weapons with the left or right uh, directional buttons on your pad. Yeah, but you have to equip them first in the yes yeah. in the sub menu. It's it's okay. sort of bizarre. Yeah, it's not even as simple as it was like in Metal Gear Solid, where you just hold L or R and you know you can scroll. Right. <laughs> like, well, they yeah. had they had an extra button at that point, didn't? Yeah, they? exactly. Yeah, Here they're using so many buttons that. Uh... Right. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I'm they could have sure. had you hold another button or something. I don't know. It just felt like really. 
it really made me think like I was really looking forward to MGS3 on the 3DS. And I, I'm not even sure I'm going to get it if the controls are like this because I really don't feel like buying a Circle Pad Pro. It feels like something I'm going to use for one or two games and then it's going to live in my closet. And I, I don't feel like I need an extra accessory. I mean, I've, I've already yeah. experienced Metal Gear Solid 3. I probably played the game twice. I love it. Don't get me wrong. It's probably my favorite Metal Gear. So uh, don't yeah, get me wrong. It's... it's just I don't think I need to play it again on 3G, 3DS. So. It's one of my favorite games, too. I think I, I've been trying to get a Circle Pad Pro. I can't because of the stupid uh, GameStop exclusive <laughs> stuff. Maybe I'll order it directly from Nintendo. But uh, I'm definitely I'm going to buy it. And I think because I, I, I do think it actually lends itself well to the 3DS. Like just that feeling like, you know, you're crawling through, you know, you're hiding, you're crawling around. It's, it's good for that little 3D screen. Like, it, it actually serves it well. I mean, it, you know, I don't think Shadow of the Colossus would be a good game for the 3DS, but Metal Gear Solid 3, definitely, for the kind of, like, camera angles and sort of feel of sure. what you're doing. So, yeah, I'll be getting it. And I think and I think it'll be enjoyable. Like, I'm probably going to get the Circle Pad Pro. I might try to play it without it and, like, take on the challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, Did yeah. you see in the camouflage section of the menu, you can basically, it's a section where you can take a picture of camouflage? Yeah. Oh, that was good. Oh, I didn't see that. That's really yeah. cool. It's actually no, nice. It's disabled in the demo, at least as far as I've seen. But yeah, it is. I, I, go ahead. I also didn't find uh, how to use it, but I, I knew from uh, previous articles on the subject that it was possible, and I saw the little camouflage, you know, button. So yeah, I, I, I think it's pretty cool. That is kind of neat. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, the last thing I've been playing is Resident Evil Revelations, but I haven't gotten very far in it still. I've gotten to a point where I'm really liking the game a lot more. That's all I'll say. So uh, yeah. I was kind of down yeah. before, but I'm enjoying it a lot more than I was last week. I'm there, too, with it. I've been, like, I'm in a segment that's, like, we, I've been on the ship for a while instead yeah. of jumping around in different episodes. And, yeah, I like that. I just like that better. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, on just to wrap up, like, the Breaking Bad front, I finished uh, finished the series so far, and awesome. I'm sort of... I still stand by my uh, position that I like seasons uh, one and two better than three and four, and I'll probably elaborate on that more in like a post. Yeah, I can understand. Uh, I, I've, I've heard your arguments, and I, I can see where you're coming from. But I still personally like four the best. I, love, I think season four is amazing. The highs, the highs of season three and four, three and four outweighs one and two. But I totally get you on the consistency of the stories uh, not being the same as one and two. Yeah. So um, I guess that's it. Uh, guys, thanks for joining me again for episode three, and we'll be back with episode four. Maybe not next week. Maybe next week. We'll see what happens. But <laughs> thanks for tuning in. And starting with this episode, you'll be able to get us on iTunes or any other RSS reader or it- or podcast subscription. I'll have details for that in the thread. So you'll be able to get our podcasts as they come out without having to check the thread if you really want to. So awesome. Thanks, guys. No problem. No problem. Bye. <laughs>